0: Then we're going to go to the gospel, which is where we've been the last few weeks. Mark chapter 9. We're actually going to be in verse 1 or verse 2, starting with verse 2. And then we're going to be at Second Peter 1. It'll be helpful at points to follow along in your Bible. So if you could just make a mark of some kind there, as we'll be in Exodus 34, we'll be in Mark chapter 9, and we'll conclude in 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, Let's stand together at the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 34, beginning with verse 1. And going through verse seven the lord said to moses cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and i will write on the tablets the words which were on the first tablets which you broke be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to mount sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain no one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain so moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and he went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took his hand in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Mark chapter 9, verse 2, going through verse 13. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter. And James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting with verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice and born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. You may be seated. We'll take a moment here to reflect on God's word. At this time, we'll dismiss the kindergarten and first grade to the back. We're going to start in Mark chapter 9. And I know some of you probably are used to taking notes, which is fine, and even encouraged at times. But I'm going to go through a lot of information here today. And I really don't want you to miss it by trying to keep up with a Scripture reference or something. I'll try to help you at the places that you need help. But it might be better just to sit and try to absorb the totality of what we're talking about here in the Transfiguration. And then if you need a Scripture reference later on, you can listen to the sermon online or I can get you the information. But let's, let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we are coming before your text in a very unusual spot, the transfiguration, which is unlike anything else that happened except for the resurrection. And so we want to see what it is that you want us to see in this very unique event. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would open our eyes, you would open our ears, you would quicken our heart to the things of God as we think together through Your Word. Amen. If you're selling a house, one of the things that you have to do is you have to provide for a potential buyer what's called a disclosure statement. Probably most of you have seen one or filled one out before. And essentially what a disclosure statement does is it tells the potential buyer that all the things that they can't see like the electricity or the plumbing or the heating and air, that all of those things basically work. Because when you as a buyer going in to look at the house, you're basically just looking at the the floors or the walls or the rooms, just all the things that you can see. But you want to make sure that you're not buying a house that if you bought it, you'd walk in and sort of fall through the floor. You would want to know if there were termites, if there was something about the house that you couldn't see, you would want that to be disclosed. And so the disclosure statement helps you understand that what you see on the outside is matched by the internal part of the house. And so when we get to Mark chapter 9 in the Transfiguration, God, I think, is giving a kind of disclosure statement about Jesus. Uh, Up to this point, Jesus has been doing quite a few very remarkable things. Most of them you would remember. He's been healing people. He brought a young girl back from death to life. He walked on water. He fed thousands of people with just a few fish and some loaves. His, his popularity was enormous. People just were thronging to him. And you might say that uh, he's always playing to a packed house. Every time Jesus enters a the house, there's so many people in the house, they can't even eat. It's hardly, they can hardly move. And so... What God is doing here, I believe, is peeling back the exterior of Jesus just for a moment and to sort of offer a full disclosure to help the disciples understand that the exterior, the things they've been seeing more than matches up with the interior, something that maybe they haven't seen in Christ. And this is going to be a great encouragement to the disciples as they move toward Jerusalem. Remember when Peter proclaimed that Jesus was Christ. He is the anointed one. And then Jesus immediately said, then the Messiah must suffer and be rejected and be killed. And so as they're moving towards Jerusalem, which the rest of the uh, gospel does, uh, this event is going to solidify them to them in their mind as they see the person that they've been following hanging on the cross They're going to remember what we see on the outside is more than matched by what the reality of the inside of Christ is. And they're getting a little glimpse, a very unusual glimpse of it right here in Mark chapter 9. So let's consider uh, this a disclosure statement really concerning the divinity of Jesus. God's peeling back and these three disciples are, are able to peer into eternity in some way. And I think that the disclosure is happening in these three ways. And this is what we'll talk about. One, Jesus' divinity is disclosed by the transfiguration itself. Number two, Jesus' divinity is disclosed by the presence of Elijah and Moses. These two great Old Testament figures show up at this event in a very unusual manner. And then finally, Jesus' divinity is disclosed by God. It's disclosed by the transfiguration, what they see and what's happening. It's disclosed by the, the presence of Elijah and Moses. And it's, then it's finally disclosed by God. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured. The Greek here is he was metamorphosis. He's, he's changed substantially. In his in his being before them and his clothes became radiant and intensely white as no one on earth could possibly bleach them. Now, it doesn't take a, a biblical scholar or a lot of biblical knowledge to begin to read this passage. And then here you want to turn back to Exodus chapter 34 and see that there's a great deal of similarity between what happened with Moses on a mountain and what's happening with Jesus on this particular mountain. First, both occurrences are happening at a mountain. Second, in both occurrences, some kind of cloud comes down. And from the cloud is the voice of God Almighty. Both situations have Moses. Moses is on the mountain and then Moses appears in the transfiguration. And notice in chapter 34, verse 5, I think what's happening in both occasions, the message in both occasions are very similar. Disclosure. God's trying to disclose himself in some unique way in the transfiguration. He's trying to say, look at Jesus and and see something you haven't seen before. And then God's coming down to Moses in chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in a cloud. And look, he stood with Moses. And what did he do? He proclaimed. He's proclaiming. He's delivering a sermon. So God, imagine this. Moses is the audience. And God steps up to the pulpit. And he's delivering a sermon. And he's proclaiming his own name. Do you see me, Moses? I'm the Lord. And then he repeats it again. The Lord passed by before him. I don't know if it was like a good preacher you know, he stands up and he proclaims something and then he gets out in front of Moses and he's, he's walking around like a good preacher saying, it's the Lord, the Lord. He's just trying to open Moses' eyes. And if you see in your text, it's all capitalized L-O-R-D. That means the name of Yahweh. It's Yahweh. I've, I've, I've arrived on the scene. I want you to know my nature. I want you to know my character. And that's the sermon that Moses gets. And so I think that's the same, it's a similar sermon of Mark chapter 9. Christ steps on the scene and, and, and God's trying to open up their eyes to say, it's the Lord. Do you see him? Can you comprehend him? So the message of both are the same. And both event, events have a, a radiance. You might remember, because Moses spoke to God face to face, when he came back down before the people, the people were afraid of him. And so he had to wear some sort of veil. And so we have this radiance that's happening in both places. So I think it would be easy to assume that what's happening here in Mark chapter 9 is basically a repetition of what happened in Exodus chapter 34 and that Jesus is... The new Moses. And I want to say no. No. Moses is rightly thought of as a shadow of the Old Testament and he's casting a shadow onto something real that's going to happen in the New Testament. But the shadow of something is a great deal different than the thing itself. And so we we can see some comparisons, but it's not as, not, not as if Jesus has just stepped up And he said, now I'm the new Moses. I'm the real thing. Moses was casting a shadow, but now look, I've arrived. And so you might be able to see what a pine tree looks like in a long shadow. But if you try to grab that shadow, there's really nothing substantial there. But when the pine tree's there, you go, yes, I I feel it, I smell it. It has a substance, a reality to it that the shadow doesn't have and Moses cast a great shadow, but when Jesus shows up, there's a substance, there's a a reality to his being that's not comparable to Moses. The distinction here is that when Jesus is is transformed or metamorphosed, is that the right word? Changed. Notice that His clothes become radiant. In Matthew it says His face shone like the sun. It it was a glory that couldn't be veiled. You You couldn't have a curtain big enough. It would be like trying to make a curtain that would cover the sun. That would be an impossibility. And notice that Jesus wasn't reflecting God's glory. God's glory was radiating out of Him. Light wasn't bouncing off of Jesus. Light was coming out of Jesus. Jesus wasn't simply pointing to the glory of God. He was producing the glory of God. Jesus isn't like Moses. He's like God. He's shown up. He's the exact radiance of God's glory. And so we're not surprised when we read in Philippians chapter 2 That at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow. That was not said of Moses. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Yahweh. He came down and He pulled back some of His veiled humanity for us to look into the eternity of His soul. And it was brighter than anything we've ever seen. Or John 14, Philip said... Jesus, show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. And Jesus replied, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Or Hebrews three: the Son is the radiance, the shining out of God's glory. He's the exact representation of His being. Or John 1, 4 and verse 9. It's not surprising that John, who's at the Mount of Transfiguration, would describe Jesus in this way in the opening part of His Gospel. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. So at the Transfiguration however we might try to describe it, the, the sun has appeared. It, it's looking at the interior of God. God's disclosing to the disciples. God's disclosing to us something here profound that real life, real light, real weight has uniquely broken into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the question that we're going to have to ask ourselves Have we seen that light? Secondly, Jesus' divinity is disclosed by Elijah and Moses. Or the presence of Elijah and Moses. You notice these two Old Testament figures show up back here in Mark chapter 9. Verse 4, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Jesus. John Calvin says this about the presence of Elijah and Moses. It was intended to demonstrate that Christ alone is the end of the law. Represented by Moses. And the end of the prophets. Represented by Elijah. Meaning all of the law. All of the prophets were coming and and sort of ending on Christ. They've been pointing towards Christ. And the law and the prophets is a way to describe all of the Old Testament. You might remember this in Matthew 22. Jesus states, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then remember what he says. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two things. So Jesus is coming in Matthew 22 and He's summing up all of the Old Testament. And He says, we can sum it all up in these two things. All of the Law and the Prophets, all of the Old Testament hang on these two commandments. And with Moses and Elijah coming, what Moses and Elijah's presence means is that all of the Old Testament is now pointing to, it's being fulfilled in, the person of Christ. And I wished, have you ever read the Bible some places and they talk about having a conversation, but they don't tell you about the conversation. They just say they had a conversation and I want to go, what did they say? That's what I want to know. And it just seems like so critical and you leave that part out and here it is. They're having a conversation. And I want to say, Mark, what did they say in the conversation? That's what I want to know. I would want to know what Elijah and Moses and Christ got together and had a little chit chat about right here, and all we get is from Luke nine. They spoke about his departure, which in the Greek word means exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So at least part of their discussion, they're 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 t- getting together. And they're looking down this road and they see Jerusalem and they see the cross and they see the departure or the exodus that Christ is going to initiate. And it's certainly not in the text. But if all of the law and the prophets hang on or point to or Jesus is the sum of all of the law and the prophets, I wonder if Elijah is reflecting back on an event that happened in 1 Kings 18. You remember Elijah is standing alone on Mount Carmel. He's on another mountain. And he's standing there all by himself, this lone prophet. And he's against 450 or 850, all of the evil prophets in the kingdom that Ahab was ruling. And on Mount Carmel, all of the evil prophets, they built this altar. And then Elijah constructed an altar. And they said, whichever, whichever God answers by fire, then that's the true God. And so the prophets of Baal cut themselves and they screamed out to their God and no answer. And then Elijah steps forward. And this is what he says, O Lord... God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that You are God in Israel and that I am Your servant and that I've done all these things at Your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that You, that You, O Lord, are God and that You are turning their hearts back again. And then fire fell from heaven and it consumed The wood and the cut bull that was on the altar. And then when all the people saw what happened, this is what they cried. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And perhaps in the discussion, Jesus and Elijah are looking to another hill. They're looking to a hill in Jerusalem. Golgotha, where a single prophet facing all of the evil that the world could possibly bring forth. Wood has been arranged. And the prophet steps forward. It says, O Lord, so that these people will know You and that You are turning their hearts back again, send Your fire, send Your wrath from heaven and burn up the sacrifice. But the wood that is arranged is in the shape of a cross. And it's not a bull that absorbs the sacrifice. But it's the Son of God. And when people see that sacrifice, they will say, He is Lord. And if you would look later at Mark 15, remember what happens? Jesus cries his last. And what does Mark record? There's a Roman soldier standing by the Christ and what does he say? Surely, this is the Son of God. And so maybe they're thinking back about this and looking forward, Elijah and Christ. Maybe Moses is having similar thoughts. And he's having a conversation with Jesus. And Moses is remembering another Exodus. An Exodus that rescued God's people from 400 years of slavery. A rescue that was marked forever by the cost of a Passover lamb, an unblemished lamb. See, the lamb, remember, had to be sacrificed and the blood had to be put on the door of every home. So when the angel of death came, it would pass over. So that all who believed death ultimately wouldn't win because of the lamb that was slain. And perhaps Jesus and Moses are together looking at another exodus but on a worldwide cosmic scale. And they're looking ahead to Jerusalem and the ultimate rescue. And Moses is looking directly now at the Lamb of God. The unblemished sacrifice. The Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And he's looking at Jesus. maybe in this conversation, Jesus is helping Elijah and Moses. We don't know. But to look even past Jerusalem. We know they're looking toward Jerusalem in the cross. But maybe Jesus is going to say to them and wants to say to His disciples and needs to say to us, let's keep, keep on looking. Revelation 5, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. It was standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And they sang a new song. You are worthy. Take the scroll, open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And then I heard many angels numbering in the thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000 And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice were singing, Worthy is the Lamb to receive power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praised and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And I I wonder if you see that everything that has ever happened, everything in the past and everything in your past, everything in this present time and everything across all present time, everything in the future and everything in your future, everything revolves around one person. It's the person of Jesus Christ He is the eternal weight of glory. Have you grabbed a hold of the reality? Are you still looking at the shadow? Or the shadow or the shallowness that the world casts around? Are you grabbing at those things? Or do you have your hands on the living, almighty Lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the world? I wonder if you see that. You see, Jesus breaks open this chasm of eternity and we see something unique in His transfiguration. Elijah and Moses are standing there and they're looking at Jesus and He's it. He's the sum and substance of everything. And then finally, Jesus' identity is disclosed by God Himself. If you're over 45 or 50, which unfortunately there aren't that many of us in that crowd here today, you would be, you would remember this quote. Maybe you've remembered it anyway. Fairly famous quote from John Lennon, who was interviewed in a by a lady named Maureen Cleave in the London Evening Standard in 1966. And this is what John Lennon said. Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue with that. I'm right. I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Christianity. Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. Now certainly as we've walked through Mark, we've seen that disciples are thick and ordinary. And their thickness and their ordinariness actually gives me hope. I enjoyed their thickness and ordinariness. But but the fact that they were thick In ordinary wasn't going to deprive God of making sure the right information got out. Yes, he was using the disciples, but he didn't need the disciples to get the right information out. And if the disciples were going to step over some kind of line, God was going to come in and say, no, you're not going to get it right by going that way. You've got to see this. And so God steps in. Verse five. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what he was saying. He was terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone. When I read this passage, one of the things I kept thinking of is, Poor Peter. I just felt sorry for Peter. I mean, you remember six days ago what happened to Peter? He proclaims that you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus says, well, I'm going to suffer. And what does Peter do? He takes him aside. And Peter, not a position that any of us want to be in, gets rebuked by Christ. And you know what he says? Get behind me, Satan. Okay, now we're six days removed from that and he's saying something else again that needs correction and God Almighty comes in and steps down. I mean, that is not a favorite place to be. Peter has this sort of ready, fire, aim kind of mentality with his vocabulary. You, you know anybody like that? They just fire away and then they hope it just... Oh gosh, I've got to aim it now. And so that's what Peter does. He, he's just shooting off... And then God's coming down to say, no, that's not it, Peter. You're thick and you're ordinary, and I'm going to straighten you out right here. We have the transfiguration in verse four. Understandably, Peter didn't know what to say, but apparently felt like it was better to say something than nothing at all, which I don't advise, especially if you're married. And so he says something. And you notice that people who don't say things, they at least appear smarter than the people who do say a lot of things. So, I mean, it's a good practice just not to say anything because people think, man, they're wise. They are really smart. And really, you just don't know anything. So just you keep your mouth shut. But Peter can't do that. And he says, look, it's good we're here. Let's make three tents, one, one for each person. And there's a lot of analysis here on what, what Peter was talking about these tents and tabernacles that he was making? And does it have a relationship back to the Feast of the Tabernacles and all this kind of stuff? And it it all may be right, but I think the salient point here for us is that somehow in Peter's speech, he was bringing equality to Elijah and Moses and Christ. Let's make a tent for each one. And you know, that's pretty common today. There are lots of people who think Jesus is great. He's just like Elijah. Or He's just like Moses. Or He's just like Muhammad. Or He's just like Buddha. Or He's just like a lot of these things. And as soon as Peter makes that mistake, God comes in and says, No! Do not think that. That's not what's happening here. That's not true. Peter finishes his sentence and a cloud descends. And God is saying this is not some son of a Hebrew couple born into the family or the tribe of Levi like Moses. This is not a prophet from Tishbe and Gilead like Elijah. This is God's beloved son. He is unique. Listen to Him. And notice that suddenly... They no longer saw anyone. The cloud rises and it's Peter and James and John and Jesus. And Mark notes it. Jesus all alone. You see, no one's left standing. Nobody on the cosmic stage John Lynn, he's not left standing. Caesar, he's not left standing. The gods from the underworld when we were in Caesarea Philippi, they're not left standing. Herod and all his pursuit of pleasure, that's not left standing. The Pharisees and their dedication to the law and the traditions, that's not left standing. Elijah and Moses, they're not left standing. The only person left standing, the only person worthy of our worship, the only person worthy of centering your whole life around is Jesus Christ. And He stands alone in the center of all of human history. There is no one like Him. He is the true light that gives light to every person. He has come into the world He is the only door that opens up into another world. He's like the sun. And He stands before you. And if you're like me, you might be saying, yes, but I wasn't at the transfiguration. If I could just see something like that, well, then I would believe. If somehow eternity could just Peel back for me as I drove home today or I was in my quiet time. Well, then I would see it and then I would say, well, yes, of course, but I can't see that, Paul. And you're asking me to see it. I can't see it. Second Peter, chapter one. And this is where we'll end. Peter, finally, at the end of his life, we can all go. Whoosh. I mean, two strikes, two tough strikes on Peter. Peter. I don't know what the third one would have been. But he, he finally gets it right. Notice what he says. 1 Peter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses. Now, he's reflecting back on what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory... This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Great, Peter. But what about me? I wasn't on the holy mountain. Verse 19. And we have something more sure. This is almost a stunning statement. You mean, Peter, you were on the mountain, and now you're saying we have something more sure than that? We have a a greater foundation? Something we can plant our feet on that's even more solid than what happened on the mountain? Absolutely. It's the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. It's like a lamp. It's like a sun, and it's shining out in dark places. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So do you see Him? Do the eyes of your heart see the risen Savior? Do you see Him today? It's interesting that after all of the show, if that's the best word, and it's probably not, of the transfiguration... All the brightness and these Old Testament figures coming forward and a cloud descending. I mean, there's nothing more visual than this particular event. At the very end, God says, this is my son. What? Remember this event. Look, look, look on this. He says something that you and I can do today. Listen to him. And how are you going to know Him? You have to read the Word of God. And it's possible in the preaching of this Word that you've seen the risen Savior. That you're no longer holding on to the shadows of the world. You're no longer holding to any other shadows. You've seen and you can grasp the real thing. Jesus Christ. Have you seen Him? If you've seen Him, is all of your life circled around Him? Is everything in your life point to the one reality, Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Lord, there is no way we can see this on our own. But by the power of the Holy Spirit coming in and opening up our our the eyes of our heart to see reality. We are thick and ordinary and happy to admit it. But I pray, Lord, for people who have not seen that they would see. For those who have seen, who 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 somehow have embraced the reality of Christ that they would no longer chase after shadows, images, mirages that the world has to offer, but they would center their life on the one, true, real, eternal weight. And that's Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, when we do that, our whole lives transform. Everything about us is different. We, we see everything differently. One of the things that we see differently is the material things of this world. They dim in comparison to what they were. And so when we come to this time of offering, may we just be reminded of that. These are not the real things. The real things are Christ. May we give our whole lives to Him. In that name we pray. Amen.